This is GamesAtWork.biz, your weekly podcast about gaming, technology, and play. Your hosts are Michael Martin, Andy Piper, and Michael Rowe. The thoughts and opinions on this podcast are those of the hosts and guests alone and are not the opinions of any organization which they have been, are, or may be affiliated with. This is episode 437, Dippin' Into Dots. Good morning, good evening, good afternoon. Michael Rowe here on Friday. And it is so bizarre to be doing a podcast on a Friday where we are once again all dispersed across the globe. And it was so great to have you here last week. Andy Piper, how the hell are you? I'm great. I'm a little bit tired, but I'm fine otherwise. Yes, it's weird to be looking at you through a computer screen again, uh, since I saw your faces without computer screens in between more recently than that. So, yeah, good. And and Michael Martin, how the heck are you? Um, surviving the rain, but it looks like that's about over now. So that's, You're that's welcome. a good thing. You're welcome. I left <laughs> yeah, you brought it. I left. Yeah. I took it, and I left a little bit of London back where I back with you. Little bit of London. It it was appreciated. Well, we've got some fun links to talk about this week. Um, following on from last week, where we had talked about some of those old timey clocks that had those flipping uh, numbers that um, would make those lovely clicks and kind of keep everybody restful and doing what they were doing. Um, and we talked a little bit about those boards at the airport and other places. And to follow on from that from last week, we've got some links and stories here about f- the fast flipping dots that would allow for that kind of artwork to take place and uh, to also be able to use them in various projects. Like, who knows, maybe like with a Raspberry Pi, perhaps, right? I, I, um, I have looked at these um, because you can buy them sort of even down to the individual dot. Um, so the individual dots have uh, have a little magnet, a magnetic field that flips them with, with the most modern sort of setup. Uh, and they've done some sort of smallish but still quite expensive arrays that you could buy for your Raspberry Pi project, for example. Um, but yeah, the dot matrix artworks that the Breakfast Studio uh, have done, a ton of other things if you explore their website as well. So they're, they're, they're a yep. studio that's done a, a, a bunch of different types of large sculptures and artworks. But if you look at their feature artworks and click through to them, they've got some really incredible ones. now. They've got things like, and the very first one on the screen under the flip disk art, artwork is a, is is a melting iceberg, which looks very very cool. But in order to do something like that, there's actually another one which is even more uh, time dependent, where uh, it's called Portraits in Black and Silver lower down, where it is essentially mm, yeah. using a camera to to take what the the, the viewer the, the person standing watching it is doing. So it looks almost like a mirror that's. Uh, so it's reflecting using these dots very, very fast. So you need extremely low latency um, to, to achieve that. It's extremely cool. Uh, but these things are not cheap in any way. They are not, um, I think they, you can get these kind of, kind of arrays for commercial purposes, but uh, I don't think that they are, especially at that scale, um, very affordable. Yeah, I know that the, the about electronic stuff uh, article you found really only shows the one color dots, right? It's either, well, I guess two colors. It's either yellow or black. 
Uh, but the the one studio, they've got multicolor, and I guess is it different material at each layer, so that when the magnet spins and causes it to flip, it's choosing which layer based off of some kind of uh, I, capacity I, or something. I don't think that's true. I think if you look at these, they are silver one side, color another side, and they and they've actually sort of plotted the colors. They, you know, they default to sort of a gradient style look. So the ones where somebody walks past, you'll see that that person always appears in kind of a shadow, silver or black, which is the flip Yeah, side but of I'm, the I'm looking at like the the Traverse one. Oh yeah, let's have a look. That, that one looks like it's multicolored disc because the person walking across does change it. But no, it's probably just silver underneath. Yeah, I didn't watch the videos, so you can't really tell without looking at the videos, so. Yeah, it's done very, very, very cleverly. So mm -hmm. um, evidently, cool. this breakfast studio themselves did some form of re-engineering to, to to do this because, again, I mean, if you think about as we were talking about last week, where you have the, mm -hmm. you know, the the airport or or transit station sort of flip flip signage, they will flip over, but they'll take a period of time to flip over to to the next destination. That's part of the charm to some extent. Right. Uh, but but to do this, you need um, to to move more quickly. So. Yeah. And I've just flipped through one of the videos, and it's definitely pre-colored, yeah. and then yeah, the yeah, flip yeah. is just the one silver. Got it. It's really cool. neat. But again, the yeah, the, very the cool. Sort of some some neat uh, background information on uh, uh, this WordPress blog. We've you know, it talks about how it works basically. One of the restaurants that I went to this weekend had a board that was kind of like that. It was a largest rectangle board, and then it would have uh, quotes on it. So. Um, I, I should have taken a picture of it because it would have been fun to include for for this sort of thing. You know, maybe 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 I need to go on a mission this weekend to go yes. to go, go grab again. a shot. <laughs> go again. You know, they they had some lovely lovely uh, whiskeys and and uh, bourbons and stuff like that. So that that's a draw. But um, it it was it's it's neat to see how this kind of artwork can uh, continue to be very relevant in our own digital age, where a screen with many many millions of colors uh is now kind of we're doing the retro thing and going back to back to the future speaking of going back to the future right um we have a couple of interesting little examples here of uh, the first one is the ibm think boy uh a, a two-don mastodon here quite clever of a little device looks like a game boy um it was uh set up as a uh, think boy you know using the same color schemes and the like here for playing Tetris. And that's uh it looked pretty cute here to be able to go do something like that. I love the track point being on it. That I mean that's still my favorite feature of all ThinkPads is the track point. Well that's just, so they've got the track point on the on the left hand side where your D pad would be or your or your joystick yep, would be yep. and then they've got the A and B button select and start in this classic sort of think ThinkPad uh color scheme for the mm -hmm. the all on the matte black uh, case which looks cool. It does look I mean retro gorgeous i have to say yeah it, yep. it's ridiculous but it does look gorgeous as, <laughs> as an object and and the second one that that we found this week is the uh tangara music player and and you you had a point or two about this as we were kind of getting the pre-show notes all set up yeah so this is a um an object an item that's on being crowdsourced through an organization called crowd supply which um, i've had success um getting or, or backing uh, projects through crowd supply before they're a, a good company that helps makers to bring their projects to life and helps them sort of navigate the 
experience of moving from prototype into manufacturing helps them to crowdsource their supporters. This is a music player which looks exceptionally similar to um, a fruit type uh, music player from the uh, early 2000s, but it's now using sort of current, easy to, to source ESP32 um, microcontrollers. And um, it's obviously now got modern things like Bluetooth audio, USB-C, black support. things like that. <laughs> uh, and it supports absolutely, out of the box, it supports open formats as well. Uh, well, all, all open formats and, and MP3. Uh, it actually doesn't support AAC according to the, uh, according to the features <laughs> and specifications here. Um, uses a standard SD card for storage. It goes up to two terabytes, which is a lot more than you used to get on the on the old school uh, uh, player. It, it does look really nice. Now, uh, I came across this because I follow Jacqueline, one of the creators on uh, the interwebs, and I have done uh, since before Mastodon, I think. Uh, it looks really interesting. So depending on how nostalgic you're feeling for uh, your uh, older um, music players and maybe you don't want to have everything in your phone for whatever reason, then uh, have a look. Yeah, it, this is fabulous. That is a team from Australia who's created this. And uh, I, I love the fact that the capacitive click wheel is an integral part of this particular device because I kind of missed that haptic experience from the the early versions of the player too. Um, c- kind of funny, my, my son had his, uh, his phone uh, bust on him and he needed a new a new phone so he bought himself a burner android phone uh for thirty dollars and it's worth every penny well so he said you know this this is a great thing because he can play apple music on it and so when he's at an event and he needs to run some music he can use his burner phone plug it in with a headphone jack because his burner phone has a headphone jack and he can just kind of hide it away out of sight and does not need to be babysitting and monitoring his computer or his other his phone, uh, which would otherwise be connected to the music system. So for for thirty bucks, he's got himself a, an Android phone that is enabled by Apple Music that allows him to have his playlists and everything like that. It's like well done. Well I mean, done. I've, I've owned I've owned both platforms at different points in time, and there was a point where I was doing DevRel for a uh, mobile platform and kind of needed to have a, an Android device as well as, as my iPhone. And it's a really nice, I mean, it's an absolutely awesome operating system. And it's actually yeah. one of those things that I regularly kind of runs through my mind. Should I have a, a, another phone just so that I can uh, do Stay stuff current. on Android as well? I, um, keep up I, I really wish... I really wish they would focus on their tablet side, though, because that's I, I, I had an Android tablet for the longest time because I was doing some cross-development over there. And um, uh, every time I want to get it again, they they, they still just seem like blown-up phones, uh, that they haven't really <laughs> optimized the tablet form factor yet I, I think with, that's with some of their stuff. I think that's changed a lot, at least in the last year, uh, with the with the uh, the Nexus line, but I yeah. don't quote me on it because I haven't tried it myself, so... So, so moving along um, and, and thinking about playing games on, on phones and devices here too, there was a, a fun new serious game um, that the, the, in, in, the, in the great form of serious games, right? And attempting to poke fun at social media platforms and the like 
uh, called Trust and Safety Tycoon. And in this particular game, you get to play the role of someone who is performing in the trust and safety role for a social networking application. And you're presented by your CEO with a variety of questions about policies and structure and then uh, off to the races you go trying to manage the environment to keep engagement high to uh, ensure that it is a safe uh, private and and usable environment and the game moves pretty quickly from some some easy decisions such as deciding whether or not uh, someone who says okay boomer to someone in a reply should they be banned for life or is that acceptable or is there you know, something quite in the middle that you need to determine if it's good or bad? Uh, I know all three of us had a chance to play. Uh, Michael, what, what was your experience in this game and how did you enjoy it? I, I, I really thought it did a good job of explaining or at least demonstrating the complexity and the implications of your decisions, right? Because it wasn't just, is it a safe space, blah, blah, blah. But you also have to worry about, you know, getting your next round of funding. You also have to worry about, are you alienating um, people who are buying ads on your service, right? And and so it shows the complexity of some of these decisions and how something as simple like, you know, oh, this is silly. I'm just going to, you know, the OK Boomer one as an example. Uh, there were three options, and every one of those options had pros and cons on the choices, either impacting the types of conversation based off the space that you wanted to create, um, the impact to, um, you know, let's say you did do a temporary ban. Well, you might have the person come back on a fake account and flame the place or whatever, right? So there's all these, the interlocking intercomplexity of a social platform, and you I can see what they were trying to demonstrate, which is you might start with pure intentions, but there are these other motives that will slowly shift you off of where you think you might have been. So I have a, a, a broad range of thoughts on this particular game. Uh, I posted about it the other day, yep. came across it. Uh, I follow Mike Masnick from TechDirt. So Mike is uh, pretty well known. You probably both have heard of the phrase the, the Streisand effect. Yep. Um, Mike was the person that coined that term. Um, so he's been deeply involved with um, speech online for a long time. And I follow Tech Dirt. I followed his interviews with people involved in trust and safety, just for definition for folks that are listening who might not be familiar with the term so much. Trust and safety is typically the label that is applied to the teams at social networks uh, or platforms where they are uh, trying to look after user safety, data security, um, and, and and policy enforcement, all those kinds of things. So it's kind of what it sounds like. But just to just to clarify that, I worked closely with friends and coworkers in that role in my previous job, and so uh, I certainly got. And a fairly deep, deep knowledge and angle. Uh, my, my angle being specifically around developer APIs, access to data through developer APIs, and how that can be used and misused, for example, and, and how that might contribute to the direction and, uh, of a trust and safety team. Um, so Mike, Mike and his team have got a ton of experience and knowledge and relationships with people who, who've been in those roles. So I think the game is very well constructed. 
Um, yeah. If you're listening to this and thinking, well, you must go and look that up. Um, it's, it's trustandsafety.fun is the is the URL, I believe. Uh, it, it works in a it works best in a in a desktop browser rather than a mobile browser. It gets a bit cramped otherwise. Yeah. Um, it's it's really well done. Um, it's all you know clickable through. Um, there's a narrative and storyline to it. Uh, and yeah, as as you said, Michael, it's it's all about those trade offs and tr- figuring out, you know, if I m- move in this direction at this point in time, what other things? How's it going to affect my resources, my funding, my how busy my moderators are, how busy how the the public opinion or the user opinion of the platform? Really, really well balanced, I think. However, I will point also point out that. Uh, Mike Masnick has a, a secondary arm to what he does, which is a think mm-hmm. tank called Copia, um, which is also something of a, I guess, what you might describe it as a lobbying kind of organization. So I think there's definitely a uh, a point of view. Uh, so even though we're sort of playing this game along the lines of, okay, let's have, let's be as, br- maybe you're t- thinking, let's be as, broad-minded as possible to achieve, you know, growth and goals and all those kind of things. I think, you know, when we're presented with these kind of things, it is worth thinking about what the goal of uh, people putting those things out there is, other than to broaden yep. our minds, is the argument that, you know, all of this is just too hard and everybody should just be allowed to do whatever they want online. Um, I think that there's the, the, that goes the, takes a different path. So, mm-hmm. yeah, I think it's just one of those things to be aware of. Yeah, and and that was one of the two things I wanted to end on before we move to the next couple of topics too. That Ian Bogost was a, a guest on the show a few years ago, and we did talk extensively with him, and, and we have over the years about serious games and the notion that uh, games can be satire, just like a political cartoon in a newspaper, mm-hmm. uh, if, if if you still get a newspaper, uh, might exist. Um, so it's a, a way of expressing commentary and value through the medium of a game. And it gives you an experiential way of doing that. And you're right, Andy, you have to think about what was the purpose behind all that because you're not, pay- you're not paying for this game. This game is not intended purely to be fun. Uh, it has messages and thoughts behind it. And then the, the second thing was uh, something I encountered actually a little bit earlier today, uh, Weibo, actually has implemented something that was in the game here too. Hmm. Granted, it's not new. Uh, this sort of thing has existed before. And that was, do you use your real name right. Uh, right. on the platform right. or not? And the CEO of Weibo um, actually did uh, use his real name. And uh, there was a, a, a nice little discussion about, do you do this or you're not? And what happens and, and so on. It's a hugely complex issue. There was a, a few years ago, um, I want to say five or six or, or more years ago, there was a point where Facebook was going to, in fact, they may still try to enforce that where everybody must be themselves. Um, yep. And yeah, it's it's an incredibly nuanced thing. You know, people may not want to speak freely for lots of reasons, under their own name for many reasons, be they politically more motivated for safety, for, for just personal, you know, um, confidence reasons, all kinds of uh, reasons. And it's, yeah, it's just really challenging. You do need to come down on it. You make need to make a choice every time. You need to make a choice. You can't just not make the choice, um, but you have to live with the consequences of those choices. So I think, I mean, that's certainly something I very much learned in, you know, uh, in fire in the last 10 years. A learning in fire, you know, there's some some intriguing points on this too, Michael. And we have a listener link, uh, or a couple of them, that's talking about 
uh, what happens when cultural artifacts are stolen, what can be done to draw attention to that. And UNESCO is actually planning for a virtual museum to uh, assist in the communication, learning, and more on those lines. Well, I, I, and and I took it even even more than that, right? Because uh, we've had historically uh, over the last twenty plus years, UNESCO has done thing to done things to save heritage sites that may have been caught up in a war or a conflict where they're destroyed, uh, and so scanning those sites or having lots of pictures and using photogrammetry to kind of render them into 3D places where you can visit. Uh, or we've had examples in the past where we talked about, you know, uh, going through the the pyramids, right? Uh, but this is a great example of using the data that's available for various artifacts and not only creating uh, kind of a virtual museum, but also to create content that can then be used by others to identify stolen objects, right? Uh, so, so once you become familiar with the object and you can pick it up and look at it virtually, right? Experience it in such a way, uh, it might become uh, a little bit more known to people and identifiable for those who might be looking at an object and say, hey, wait a minute, I saw this in a quote, museum <laughs> and I'm seeing this at this party what uh, where did this guy get this right um, so I, I I thought it was really cool and the uh, uh, my wife had picked me these articles uh, as something she knew would be interesting for the show and the listeners of the show and I thought this was a great example of using 3d content and 3d virtual spaces for more than just education more than just entertainment but in this case actually building uh, um, content that can be used to identify stolen objects. I have three things to say on this topic. All right. So my three things are really quickly, and then I will go into them, about uh, access to stolen objects, uh, about the future of this museum. And also I wanted to flash back to something that happened earlier in the year. So uh, access to stolen artifacts, I think um, that's really uh, commendable. I think you mentioned just then that um, we've had examples where important cultural sites have been destroyed due to warfare or, or just due to cultural vandalism. And I think mm -hmm. those things are um, worthy of attempting to preserve. I found it really interesting. I'm, I'm looking at the two articles, two links we have. One of them is from The Guardian and the other one is from Artnet. And on The Guardian website, there's a sidebar that points to the British Museum's uh, efforts to release images of our objects that were have gone missing during the pandemic. I don't know whether this news story is, yeah. has gone global. I'm fairly sure it has, that the British Museum lost some objects. Um, and, or, yes. or in, and in fact, uh, I believe there are investigations into people that were employed there that are going on. And it's all very uh, upsetting. The flip side of that, of course, is the, the British Museum is very frequently shouted at and used as an example of a museum that has itself uh, become the benefit benefactor the beneficiary of stolen objects and, and specifically yeah. the Elgin marbles and as a classical scholar mm -hmm. I have really mixed feelings on the future and, and I said earlier I have to make a decision and I'm not going to make a decision on this podcast as to whether or not I support <laughs> them staying or going away but it's um, it's really definitely really interesting the second point though leading into that uh, leading on from that is that both of these articles point out that the museum itself says the 
the ultimate aim should be that it that it disappears. It shouldn't be a thing. Um, it should diminish and dwindle as the objects are recovered and available to view um, in a real museum somewhere. So yeah, the goal here isn't. Well, it, yeah. So, so exactly. I, I thought you might because you made the comment earlier about the the things that have been lost rather than not rather than got the, than being stolen. The thing, the objects that have been lost by through warfare and cultural vandalism and so on. And I think that that's interesting. I think that it certainly acts as a showcase of things that are, are missing um, through um, the belief that they're they've been stolen, but. Um, yes, I think there is also value in the opportunity to see these objects in a format, regardless, which leads on neatly to my third thing that I wanted to talk about, which is that back in July, um, I, I think we spoke about it on the show back then, uh, I went to Liverpool Make Fest, which was this Maker Fest in uh, Liverpool, as, a, as it says in the name. That's um, my yeah. Uh, one might call it. And one of one of my friends uh, who runs the Liverpool uh, hack space and uh, co-working space there actually has uh, one of his uh, business activities as he runs something called Museum in a Box, which is at museuminabox.org, and he was exhibiting it. He was exhibiting at the Makefest his Museum in a Box <laughs> with, or multiple museums in a box. So the idea there is that you have a. Uh, a small computer. They've been using Raspberry Pis, but I think they there was the shortage earlier uh, up uh, up until recently, and they were pivoting to other hardware options and some additional uh, attachments, typically RFID readers, where you could hold up objects to those RFID readers, touch objects to them, and then be given examples of that thing. So one of the things I I believe, if I remember rightly, was a collection of North American birds. So you could hear their, their songs or you could get something on the shown on a screen that described that bird, if I remember rightly. Or they had physical objects, more than just a car, they had physical 3D printed prints or casts of small, let's say, Greek statues um, to make an unfortunate mix of my, uh, my reference points there. They found that, especially also with the, the pandemic and that lack of access or lack of ability to travel or whatever, that that was um, quite popular, or it could either in, enhance an existing museum's uh, collection, or it could um, potentially be used to take that collection on the road or something. You're reminding me of something that I I don't remember where I saw it last, but it was the internet in a box as well. So which was sharing content, Wikipedia, a whole bunch more. Yeah, you're laughing because you. It was on the IT crowd, of, right? You had a big button. What is it? This gen. It's the internet. What? That's right. This is the internet. <laughs> the whole internet. Yep. I offer a loan of it so that you could use it in your speech. <laughs> a different thing in a box. No, that's yeah. But um, but the internet in a box was uh, to pr- to provide. Uh, also via mesh networks where access to the internet and to um, uh, telecommunications might be more difficult and you're able to bring uh, a curated portion. I think it's, it, it was used in prisons and I think it was used also in places where um, where just the, the, the internet was not available due to transmission lines and satellite coverage and the like too. Yes. And I put that link in our show notes. <laughs> there we go. 
So, so uh, we're going to close out today uh, on media in general and uh, not just the IT crowd, but uh, Michael, you had a pretty cool link from Slash Film about special effects and how special those effects actually are. Yeah, I, I, I've always been a big fan of special effects in movies and uh, some of the, the the techniques that we still use today were actually founded, you know, in the late 1800s uh, for special effects. Uh, and so this article actually shows kind of behind the scene pictures of how some of the special effects were done for various iconic movies, Avatar, Dune, uh, Metropolis, uh, to, to name a couple of them. Um, and I, I like to watch movies more than once, especially if I like them, because the first time I'm watching for story and enjoyment and the second and third and fourth, I'm like trying to figure out how they did all of it, right? So this is just a great article for people who want to kind of see behind the scenes. And, you know, um, used to do some work with the guys over at Real Illusion, and uh, one of them is doing, um, one of the brothers there is is doing work in Hollywood now on special effects and also teaches in Atlanta at the university there uh, how to do this stuff. So it's kind of nice to see in practice and uh, kind of the back behind the scenes. So highly recommend looking at the article. I am looking through this now, and I am gutted to discover that they didn't film Gravity in space. Um, (laughs) Or not even in the vomit. What do they call it? The vomit comet? Vomit comet, yeah. Yeah. It's appalling. It's just really disappointing. I'm I'm really sad. (laughs) (laughs) The Matrix one, of course, is really, I think, is is pretty familiar to a lot of people, but just because when they did the bullet time stuff uh, originally, it was so mind-blowing. It reminds me, I, I've, I've, I've said it a few times, and I've probably said it on a very old episode of this show before, that I think The Matrix and the first of the Lord of the Rings movies were absolutely two of my favourites in the, in the cinema and just of all time because the first time you see them, at the point in time you see them, at the, that, mm-hmm. you know, they're one of those things that you can't go back and watch again now, not... If you show that to somebody, one of those two movies to somebody today, just the stuff that you're familiar with from watching content all the time, neither of those things seems quite so mind-blowing as it did to us at the time they were released in history. You know? Yeah. Just the the way they did Bullet Time was phenomenal. The way they did uh, just that, that seamless blending of those amazing landscapes and these fantastical creations in the fellowship of the ring it was just incredible um i'm still amazed and sad that 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 the fellowship didn't win an oscar given i know he did win an oscar in the end but Mm -hmm. but but the 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 most amazing thing is so much of the incredibleness of fellowship is practicals using techniques that were almost a hundred years old yeah absolutely yeah (laughs) and just so well done it's i was watching on the on the uh, to sort of end where we began i was on the plane on the way back i was just about to just before we landed and i was looking across the aisle at someone else's entertainment screen and they were watching the first of the harry potter movies um (laughs) and i was watching the very end of it with them uh just because that's i could see it at the corner of my eye and it was the sequence where the children get back in the train and leave hagrid behind and i'm just thinking well that's all been 
film the same way as they did the hobbits in uh or, yeah. or, or, or reverse of the way they did the hobbits in uh, lord of the rings very cool but i think we're about out of time for the week i think so i think so there's as usual uh, more things than we could have possibly covered uh, that we wanted to cover but um lots in the in the blog post that accompanies this audio episode of our podcast do come along to games at work.biz check it out click through the links read about the stuff that we've been talking about have your minds blown and expanded in the same way that ours have been this week let us know what you think about them and like subscribe and share yeah we'll catch you next time see ya see ya everybody been listening to gamesatwork.biz the podcast about gaming technology and play we are part of the blueberry podcasting network and would like to thank the band random encounters for their song big blue you can follow us on twitter at gamesatwork underscore biz or at our website at gamesatwork.biz 